This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, today we're talking about on-duty firearms. I guess we could be talking about off-duty firearms as well. When called upon to use your firearm in the line of duty, you need to know that the firearm sighting and accuracy are as reliable as possible. Our guest today is Chris Brumel with 25 years in the firearms industry, 10 years teaching law enforcement officers and military in pistol and carbine, edge weapons and empty hand combat. He's been with Whitmer Public Safety and Officer Store for the past 11 years. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Chris Brumel. Thanks, Jim. Well, uh, you probably spent a lot of time with range masters at agencies. What are they asking about the most these days? Most of the questions we're getting these days aren't necessarily specifically about firearms themselves. They're more related to T&E programs that are available, uh, what, you know, what we can do to provide them with equipment that they can, they can test and evaluate before they actually make a, 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 a completed purchase and, a, and cut a PO. And T&E, what's that stand for? Test and evaluation. Test and evaluation. All right. Are agencies being more flexible with uh, personal selections of firearms? Mm -hmm. We've had some sponsors on. Uh, staccato, for instance, uh, everybody loves the John Wick pistol. Yeah, sure. uh, so are the selections being uh, offered to the officers or are you finding most agencies are sticking to that one handgun that they're recommending? Sure. In the in the territories that we service, we're not finding a lot of agencies that actually offer to the officer a, a list of firearms that they can choose from. They are pretty much uh, purchasing one firearm or or maybe two firearms within the same the same manufacturer's lines. You know, possibly a full size pistol for on duty um, and a compact size pistol for detectives and plain clothes things of that nature. Um, it does exist, obviously. Uh, you know, um, I believe LAPD is still offering a program where individual officers can can provide their own firearms as long as it meets the 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 criteria list same with i think new york police department is doing that um but uh most of the agencies we service they're they're really standardizing on 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 one firearm or platform for the agency <clears throat> yeah when we talk about uh standardization uh repair you know the the firearms um uh range masters and the repair people uh they don't want to be uh, learning to be experts on all different makes and models. And so their, their training's limited as well. In a firefight, you want to be able to exchange magazines with, with someone else, uh, if possible. Is that this ever an issue as well? It's not one we get asked about a lot. We do, we do have it occasionally come up as, as part of a, a conversation with an agency when they're selecting firearms. Um, Sometimes it it is relative to what the neighboring agency carries, um, as well as the interdepartmental ability to exchange magazines and so forth. But honestly, no, we don't get asked it a lot. Um, I would, 
I haven't really even seen professionally too many instances where it was really even an issue in application. Um, and I think, I think you can, going back to agencies like LAPD and New York Police Department that offer uh, a, a, a list that you can select firearms from, I sometimes wonder if they're even as concerned about it as, as, as we believe they are. Yeah, it was a big issue from my home department, San Francisco PD, when we transitioned from the wheel gun from the six shooter to <laughs> semi-automatics. Uh, it was so abrupt, especially after sure. the murder of one of our officers by uh, by a suspect with a fully automatic uh, rifle. Um, and the department just said, get them. If you can afford one, get one. Uh, here's a list of of models sure. and then yeah it was across the board uh i know the the range masters complained until we standardized again went with the <laughs> the glock and then the sig and uh i'm pretty sure we're at the still with the sig sig sour right now sure and to your point you know standardizing on one firearm or one platform makes it a whole lot easier for your your range instructors your your armorers they don't have to know as many guns, how to work on them, how to how to handle the the little differences in how to manipulate the firearms, the little idiosyncrasies. They don't have to teach multiple different trigger pulls. They, they, they just have to worry about that platform. So there's a lot of benefit in standardizing for the agency, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. So in order to improve marksmanship, we need more training, right? Um, barring having enough time, uh, how can red dot optics help? Well, red dot optics help um, help the officers in a lot of ways. I don't know that it's going to short circuit that time to train issue, though. Um, I think where we're really seeing a lot of benefit from the from the red dot, the the pistol mounted red dot being applied in law enforcement is uh, areas where you know the officer no longer has to take their visual focus off of a subject and move it to the sites. Um, it allows them to be more observant of, of what's going on in their environment. Um, there are other things where it, it shines. Um, I guess maybe from a training perspective where I really see it showing up and being helpful is for those of us that are, you know, maybe 45, 50 years old and older, and, and the eyesight's not as great anymore. We don't see those iron sights as great anymore. I've seen a lot of um, a lot of officers respond really well that, that have struggled with iron sights, you know, picking up a red dot sight and going, oh, hey, I can shoot again. You know, my qualification <laughs> scores just went up. So I think there, um, there, there's some benefit, but I don't know that the red dot really offers a, a short circuit to the training path. Yeah, I, I would imagine the distance really matters when it comes to red dot. Um, I know at our training, it was uh, draw and fire, no sights, no sights sure. for the first, you know, five, seven, 15 yards. Beyond that, we could pick up our sights. So I would imagine that's where the accuracy improves. Oh, sure. You know, the, the red dot most certainly improves marksmanship at a distance. There's 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 no challenge with that to that to that statement. Um it it gives you a whole lot less margin of error in in trying to line up that post and notch versus just put the dot on it and press the trigger and do your job right, right. um so yeah it it certainly does offer some benefit there like i said in in the ability to 
continually focus on a subject or, or your environment visually. Um, <clears throat> some other places that it does really well, not just in distance, but in, in multiple target type scenarios. So you, it, it, it gives the user a lot, a lot more, a lot, again, a lot more wiggle room in what they see in, in transitioning from one target to another. So that's another place that the red dot certainly shines. Um, there's a lot of people that feel that they're slower up close. Um, I don't particularly feel that. I've been shooting uh, slide-mounted red dots for about 13 years now. I was very early adopter of them um, when they started to really hit the market. That's not to say that red dots weren't already on pistols. They were already on competition pistols and such prior to that. But the way they mounted to the gun was much different. They used they used frame mounts that would put rails up over top of the slide, and then the red dot didn't move, right? So now, now they're all pretty much mounted right near the rear sight on the slide. Um, you, you know, like I said, as 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 someone that's been a long time user of them up close, I don't really see a lot of difference between them and iron sights, but I don't think they're slower. I, I think there's just an an adaptation period that the user has to has to go through to get used to it and, and accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. And just just as effective in low light scenarios or darkness. Well, even more so, really. Um, you know, there's uh, there's some really good technology coming out that has auto adjust features for the intensity of the dot. Trigicon just released their RMR HD. Um, the the auto adjust feature on the intensity of the dot is much better than what it used to be. Um, there, there's, there's um, when you apply the weapon light to the scenario, you know, you, if you, if you keep the dot dialed down too far, you can get washout issues from the white light, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, there's even some good technology coming out within the light industry um, with some auto adjust features on the intensity of the light to account for for reflections and splashback from from like white colored walls or something of that nature mm -hmm. so the 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 technology's really come a long way yeah that's great that's great to hear hey i want to ask you about uh, best choices on a tight budget so you know more than half of the law enforcement agencies across america are smaller agencies. They don't have the big budgets of New York or LA or Boston, Chicago, San Francisco. Uh, I wanna ask you about that, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit us at officerstore.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Chris Brumel with Whitmer Public Safety and Officer Store. We're talking about firearms and small and rural departments don't always have that big budget. I think there's still some agencies that require officers to purchase their own. What's your advice for safety equipment on a budget? Well, safety equipment and and firearms, you know, while the firearm is obviously part of the duty gear and, and obviously it is a, is a tool that the officer will use to 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 keep himself safe. Um, I don't I guess I don't really associate that with things like PPE, um, you know, like body armor and things of that nature. Um, you know, agencies have a lot of access to grant monies. Um, 
federal federal grant monies, private donors, things of that nature. Um, I've seen a lot of agencies find local benefactors, local local people that really support the the agency that are willing to make donations to for them to buy equipment. Um, we actually worked very closely with um, with a local readiness group type organization that provided uh, trauma kits, IFACs for an agency. Um, so, you know, we've seen that happen. Passing off some of your other expenses, like your body armor expenses, trying to take advantage of of the, the the body armor grants, the federal body armor grants that are out there so that you're not paying for that and it frees up your money for the firearms. Because there's really not a lot of federal grants that I'm aware of to cover firearms. I think there are a few occasionally, but I don't really know very many. But finding them to cover other PPE-related stuff isn't as hard. So if you can pass those expenses off, like I said, fundraisers, things of that nature. Um, one other thing would be, you know, once you're settled on a, on a platform, if we're going to keep this firearm centric, you make sure you've taken the armorers classes through, through, through the manufacturer, you know what the service in, intervals are on the firearm, keep it up to date, keep it, keep it tuned up, keep the parts replaced as they're required. And you're, and you're, and you're, you're, your your firearms will actually be an asset to your agency. They'll last longer. They'll hold up. They'll be more reliable. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. In the course of you know my thirty years in law enforcement, uh, I've had to fire my weapon one time in a real situation on the street, but I fired countless rounds in the uh, three times a year that I went to our range. Sure. And then sometimes, uh, like you, you're talking about staying ahead of maintenance and issues. I remember I won't mention the 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 manufacturer, but we had experiences with keyholing and uh, springs that uh, had a limited lifetime. Are you coming across that? Oh sure, springs springs are a wear item on a firearm. They they all have a limited life cycle. How 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 long is that life cycle? It depends on the manufacturer, the quality of the springs, and unfortunately, sometimes there are. You know, there are manufacturing defects. There are, you know, we're, we're still talking about, yes, they're machines, but they're machines made by people, you know. So th there are going to be, there are going to be some defects, which is why it's important to keep up on that armoring schedule, why it's important, even if for no reason to get out and do, do your qualification, make sure your firearm's still running, right? Um, um, we're finding that the, 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 the lifetime, the expected lifetime on those parts is growing as technology grows as well as manufacturing processes improve. Um, but unfortunately, we're still, you know, we're still on the downside of coming out of the COVID lockdowns and the and the COVID problems. And and there were a lot of manufacturing issues through through that time. So it's it's even though even though the technology is improving and catching up, it's still important to stay on top of that stuff because you know, sometimes sometimes humans mess up. Yeah, for sure. And and that's a integral, uh, critical part of the job, the tool for the job. And you never want that to go sideways on you. No, certainly not. So um, we talked about small and rural departments. You talked a little bit about grants and things like that. The federal grant that I've written about is the 1033 program. And we did get uh, firearms in, in the way of sniper rifles and things like that. Uh, have you seen any limitations come directly from from the new limits since 
the Obama administration on 1033? I haven't. Um, I haven't, to be quite honest with you, I haven't worked a whole lot with that grant pro program. Um, I'm not the best one to to provide feedback on that, but I do not find that most of our agencies that we deal with, we're we're primarily from from an agency standpoint servicing agencies from West Virginia to Maine, um, and we're we're really not seeing too many too many purchases that are using grant money for firearms. Mm, okay, well. Um... What else are you working on these days? You talked a little bit about technology. Do you see anything coming out that's really going to be a game changer? No, in fact, Shot Show is going on right now. It's the it's you know the big industry, the big firearms industry event every year. Um, it's actually going ongoing while we, while we while you and I are speaking. Um, there are there are some new things coming out, but nothing that I've seen that is uh, like knock my socks off, gotta have it kind of stuff. You know. Um, but the biggest things that we're seeing in, in terms of advancements really are are not so much in the firearms, but going back to the optics conversation, it's 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 coming in the optics. It's coming in the technology departments. And then what what about as far as uh, virtual reality training goes or you're seeing these um, these applications uh, with a cartridge with a laser in it? Sure. Uh, have you seen those? Any any comment on the uh, practical application of those? Can they replace training at a range, say? I think to a degree they can. You know, um, situation-dependent training is really hard to do with a firearm. Uh, with a real firearm, people get hurt. That's not, that's not really where you want that to be. Um, so virtual reality simulators certainly have a lot of impact on the ability to to train and evaluate your staff your your officers on how they can handle those scenarios um one of the downfalls i find with virtual reality though is the stress level that it creates for the officer to operate in it it, it doesn't quite rival that of the real world scenario right and that that's real hard to that's real hard to duplicate um I am very much a fan of using um, simunitions, UTM, you know, man marking type rounds, what we call force on force type training. Um, I find that 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 provides a lot more stress and you get to really inoculate the officer to that more and really see how their decision making process goes. You can recreate scenarios. Obviously, you still can't do 100 percent of what they will see on the street, but I I, I do see those those as great training tools and aids. Um, yeah, the virtual reality thing, um, it, it, it does have a place. Um, it, it most certainly in the scenario-based training applies very well there. Um, I don't know that it it does much for the marksmanship side though. Um, you know, if, if, if you wanted to work on some manipulations and things of that nature via virtual reality, that I think that helps. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to duplicate recoil and recoil is one of those things that, 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 it, that causes the, the most problems with people for people with firearms. Right. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. I know in my last experience with a FATS machine, a firearms training simulator, yep. uh, the recoil was simulated through a pneumatic system. So there sure. was a, a little bit of something and, 
And I really like the, the fact that after the scenario is over, you could see your, your muzzle and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, your accuracy and your muzzle control. And with the, the laser sights, uh, I mean, you can see some people, it looks like a jigsaw puzzle uh, where they're pointing their firearm all over the place, right? But I agree with you that at least it gives you repetition and it assists sure. in your thought process. What would you do in these scenarios? You know, we call them shoot, don't shoot scenarios yep. for a long time. And, uh, you know, they I think, you know, when I came through the academy, they were always shoot. It was almost never a don't shoot. <laughs> And so it, we've progressed to these situations that are more and more realistic, where if you use an alternate weapon, if you use voice commands, you may get a different reaction from the suspect. Sure. And so I think I think in that regard, we have a lot better uh, thought process, decision making. We could talk about it prior to the scenario and then post scenario. And I think the visuals of your muscle control, mus muzzle uh, control, it, when you have that visual, I'm a visual learner. And if I see my sights going all over the map, I know I need to, I need to fix that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yes. And, and the same goes for uh, the, the VR training. I think, um, you know, Axon has a good platform. Uh, the, the RAP has a, uh, a great uh, system. Milo was an emerging yep. system that I saw at um, IACP and again at ILEDA in, in uh, St. Louis. And uh, they're getting more, um, you know, it's not the MTV virtual scenario of, you know, right. pixelated people walking around They They seem pretty real. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen some. So in the last, I'm going to say in the last few weeks, I've seen some, some more virtual reality systems starting to appear on social media, but I don't, I don't have enough, enough information to, to really, really say where they're at in terms of application for the law enforcement world. Um, you know, I am also a competitive shooter. I shoot USPSA and IDPA is both um, um, masterclass carry optics shooter in both, both sports. Um, I have seen it from the competition world recently, and I just haven't had the time to dive into it to see if it applies to the law enforcement world. There's There's been some interesting programs that have come out that are getting some really good reviews. So it, it's possible that, that that technology is even developing, you know, you know even greater and could provide a, a much better platform for even that type of training. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, last last question I have for you is one that I ask everyone when we talk about firearms and safety equipment, and that is the load-bearing vest. And they didn't have them when I was coming up. I mean, you know, everybody in my era is sitting home with a bad back right now because of the, the duty belt. Sure. But, but so now we've released the load-bearing vest, and I've seen them outfitted with scissors and knives and even firearms in some situations. What have you come across? Are you making recommendations to agencies who do that about where they keep their weapons, tasers even? Sure. Um, you know, our, my sales team doesn't really try to engage too much in uh TTP type conversations, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures type conversations. Um, 
we try to leave that up to the agencies to 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 kind of apply their 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 policies and such to that. Um, that said, we are seeing a huge changeover to the external vest carriers that 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 equipment can be moved off the belt and put there. I mean, look, officers are carrying more today than than they ever have. Um, you know, I IFAX. Um, uh, Narcan, uh, you know, all the less lethals, the ECWs, the, you know, the, the tasers and such. Uh, and, and to your point, you know, you know, when you're sitting in your car and, and that's all sitting in the, and digging into your back, it makes, it makes the shift uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's odd to carry that load around all day. And like you said, lots of, lots of, lots of people that are in the twilight of their career are having back problems. Right. So, um, yeah, we we are seeing it a lot. Um, I'm not a big fan of moving the firearm there. I don't think the firearm is supported well enough. Um, I don't think that the structure of the vest, the material, the the molly webbing, whatever it is, I don't personally believe that it provides a secure enough platform for the firearm. Um, that said, I'm sure there are agencies that are doing it. Um, you know, certainly moving something like your taser there could could make sense. And 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 in addition. By moving the taser there, it provides a different draw stroke for it. So there's less confusion between less lethal and lethal application. You know, so there's there's a lot of benefit, I think, to that. I just don't think that the firearm, the, you know, the sidearm with the weight of it makes sense to move to the vest. To me personally, I don't find it to be stable enough. So yeah, I, I agree. And uh I've only seen them on social media, but I have seen um live officers carrying the the sharp. Right instruments the the scissors and knives and things sure um and i just you know personally i i think it exposes unnecessarily weapons to somebody you might end up you know wrestling around on the ground with uh well, but you know I, depending on how it's attached it's not very secure you can lose it it can it can end up in a lot of different places um you know and back to the knife conversation he, one thing to keep in mind is 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 if you're leaving you leaving an edged weapon exposed, uh, most ballistic vests aren't rated to handle edged weapons. So uh, you could be exposing yourself to to a threat that you don't need to expose yourself to. Um, I, I don't know that I've really put a lot of thought into officers carrying you know those types of things on their vest. Me, I'm a more traditional guy anyway. I I, I do prefer the duty belt. And, and personally, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the BDU type uniforms and such that are out now either. I, I, I still think an officer should be dressed, you know, and, and look professional and, and so forth. Not to say that they can't in the BDU type uniform. I'm just more of a, of a, you know, look the part kind of, kind of supporter. Um, uh, but yeah, I certainly understand the benefit of it. And, and I, and again, back to the changes in the industry, a lot of the manufacturers are addressing that. And, and even the external ballistic carriers that, 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 that are, that have equipment being moved to them are looking much more professional these days. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you about the uniform, but I, I think the BDU is here to stay. Oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate your time taking time with us today. Chris Brumell with Whitmer Public Safety and Officer Store. Thanks for sharing today. Sure. Thanks for having us on. Hey, and to our listeners and our watchers, 
hey, weigh in. Shoot me an email at policingmatters at police1.com. Let me know what you think. What are your opinions on the uh, body armor, uh, load-bearing vest, uh, carrier, whatever you want to call it, uh, edge weapons, taser, firearm even? I got to think that there's got to be extra training at the range when you're drawing a firearm from your vest now. So if you're if you're pro or con, I want to hear from you. Drop me an email and let me know what you think. And we'll probably talk about it on the show. All right. Stay safe. Thanks for listening and hope to catch up with you again real soon. Take good care. <laughs>